Please be advised, all music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Also, please be advised that the sound bites you'll hear from Dr. Richard Stone, I was granted permission to use from administrative personnel at the VA in Washington. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. I'm inviting you all to tune in to the last segment of my special Kelson on the Air social work podcast series entitled Social Workers Confronting COVID-19 with Compassion, Courage, and Character. For the last five months, I've been featuring social workers from all over the country sharing their personal experiences. Some shared their challenges, some their pain and disappointment, yet others shared some of their accomplishments. However, each and every story shed light on the vitally important roles that social workers have played in the battle against the deadly and devastating coronavirus pandemic. Social workers take their places right along all the other frontline healthcare workers. We have been designated in the class of essential workers, and rightfully so. It is my greatest wish that the stories shared by these social workers have garnered a newfound respect from the general public for the vitally important role that professional social workers play and the difference they make. Here, Dr. Richard Stone, executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration in Washington, D.C., one last time as he again pays a stirring tribute to social workers. Following that will be my last social worker for the series, Mr. Ed Paley, LCSW. Mr. Paley has been a professional social worker for 50 years. He is currently in private practice. His area of expertise is in helping clients deal with grief, loss, and bereavement. Please listen, learn, and be inspired. Thank you for tuning in. Today I want to talk to you about our social work community. You know, social workers are always there. They're always part of our team. And they're always interacting with our patients for various specific needs. But now with social isolation, uh, people, uh, people have needed social workers for the first time. And our social workers, for the most part, have worked face-to-face with our patients and their families. Now they can't do that. It's very difficult work. And it's unprecedented, the level of support we've gotten from our social works community. I want you to think about how much financial instability has, uh, has been induced during all of this shutdown. Uh, people are worried about money, people are worried about their jobs, people are worried about each other, and it's our social workers who are the glue that holds this together. And in any really good healthcare system, the social workers are out in front trying to make sure families are well taken care of and all of the unique needs that are not met by our medical professionals are really handled by the social work community. So today I'd like you to take a minute and just thank your social workers that are part of your team and recognize how much extraordinary work they've been able to accomplish throughout this pandemic. Thank you. To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. 
Today, I have a very special guest with me, Mr. Ed Paley. He's an LCSW. Ed has been a professional social worker for 50 years. Ed has received his MSW from Hunter College School of Social Work in 1979. In 1985, Ed obtained a job at North Shore Child and Family Guidance Center, where he worked until 1996. While there, he became the coordinator for the social work interns, and he implemented and coordinated a family bereavement program. Ed also co-facilitated the first group on Long Island for people who lost their loved one to suicide. After the terrible tragedy of September 11th, 2001, he was asked to train social workers on helping children and adults to cope with the aftermath of this tragedy. In 2014, Ed was asked to serve on the advisory board of the Ronald McDonald House of Long Island. Mr. Paley is a member of the steering committee of the Long Island chapter of the International Association of Social Work with Groups, and Ed also supervised social work interns from 1982 to 2010. He has given workshops on bereavement throughout the United States. He's widely known as an expert on grief and loss and bereavement and death and dying and how to support those that are going through that life cycle. Uh, He was named the NESW Nassau Division Social Work of the Year in 2016. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest for today, Mr. Edward Paley. Welcome to the show, Edward. Thank you, Cyrus. I really appreciate having this opportunity to discuss uh, this important topic with you. Absolutely. So um, your area of expertise is uh, grief and loss, if if I'm correct. Yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. Tell our listeners about how that plays into the whole realm of the social work profession before we get into some of the talking points. Well, Cyrus, as you know, and uh, the one universal in life that we all have to deal with is the death of a loved one, and it's how we deal with it. And I have uh, spent, uh, I started out um, in 1971 as a medical social work assistant at Bronx Lebanon Hospital before I went for my master's. And um, back in the 70s, you know, there certainly was morphine around, but there was no hospice, and many people were not dying with dignity, and they were dying even though they had the morphine. Uh, People weren't uh, there for them and didn't know how to deal with the whole subject of death. So I, um, I've been dealing with the subject of death now for even more than the 50 years I've been a social worker. Uh, when I was 10 and a half, 62 years ago, my father died of a heart attack. And in 1959, there were no bereavement books around, there were no bereavement groups, and there were no bereavement therapists. So I think that it's very important that all social workers, even if they don't have my expertise, know how to help people deal with the death of a loved one, especially during this time of the COVID-19 crisis. Okay. And that's a great way to segue. Thank you for that. That's a great way to segue into um, our first point for the evening. Um, Tell our listeners in your experience, how has COVID-19 affected people's ability to deal with the death of a loved one? Well, I think it's made it much more difficult. Uh, uh, Last April, April of 2019, my younger brother died of brain cancer. I was able to visit him in the hospital and in hospice at Calvary uh, Medical Center up in the Bronx. I was able to say goodbye to him as well as other family members. I was able to find out his wishes, and then I was able to bury him. He's buried next to my mother and maternal grandparents in New Jersey. We're able to have a funeral, and I was able to sit shiver. Uh, I sat shiver. You know, you, you could decide how many days you want to sit shiver. I sat for two and a half days. And during those two and a half days, 
I had over a hundred people come into my house to pay respects. And some people, you know, they bring cakes. So I had about 15 cakes that were unopened. I called the Interfaith Nutrition Network and I brought that uh, and donated in memory of my brother. If this was this April, Silas, we wouldn't have been able to go and say goodbye to him. Mm -hmm. He would have he died alone. The funeral would have been limited to five to ten people. At the cemetery, my rabbi tells me that all the uh, cemetery staff are dressed in hazmat suits. They're limited to how long they could stay at the cemetery. And also, in the Jewish religion, uh, when you put the casket into the ground, you take each person that wants to. The rabbi goes first, takes a scoop of dirt and places it on top of the casket. My rabbi told me that if this is nowadays, everyone has to bring their own shovel. He's not allowed to give his shovel to the person who's the mourner. The mourner, let's say, is there with his wife. If the wife doesn't bring her own shovel, she's not allowed to borrow her husband's shovel. And I think that uh, churches were closed during this crisis in the beginning. Uh, uh, synagogues were closed, mosques were closed. And then also in the hospitals, people were dying alone because their loved ones were not allowed to visit them. So I think that this adds to something that we call complicated grief. And thank God there were the social workers in the hospital because they were able to be with the person who was dying with modern technology, uh, to be able to use the uh, phone or the iPad and to communicate with the family so that the loved one, before they maybe would put on a ventilator, was able to say their goodbye. And the social worker, in terms, was able to sit with that person and help them to die with dignity, to hold their hand, and to use the skills that all of us professional social workers in terms, learn how to develop. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. And I did hear a lot about that from some of the other social workers that I've been speaking with uh, during this uh, COVID-19 special that I've been uh, embarked on. And yes, they have said that in many instances, it was just the social worker in that room with the dying patient and the only connection between the dying patient and their families. Now, you mentioned something very important, uh, Ed, and that's the skills that a social worker has to be able to handle a moment like that. Tell our listeners about those skills and how those skills are developed, starting with social work school. Well, I, I think that the most important thing besides the classroom knowledge that's given by professors at the various schools of social work is your field work placement. Uh, if you uh, usually you do uh, a uh, field placement uh, three days a week in the master's program with um, a, a quality supervisor who's been trained uh, and understands how to help social work interns to develop the skills needed to go on to their second year. Uh, usually you have two different placements. So one year you may do it in a school uh, and then the next year you may choose to do it in a nursing home or in some other facility. And you de develop with the help of a uh, field supervisor, the skills needed. Uh, and, and one of the things that you do as a social work intern and beginning social workers sometimes do this also, it's called process recording. So your, your verbatim, uh, he said, she said, and it's the job of the supervisor. And as you noted, I supervised social work interns from 1982 to 2010. And I, my job was to make sure that when they finished the bachelor's, the bachelor's in social work went on. Because uh, if you get a bachelor's in social work, you only have to do one year in the master's program. 
was to make sure that they were quality qualified to move up to the next level. And if it was a second year student, that when they got their MSW, that they were qualified to have that MSW or the LMSW by taking the exam in New York State or the LCSW, that to me, professional social workers, I'm not knocking any of the other uh, professions, but if you're a well-trained professional social worker, you understand systems, you understand resources that people need. And I think social workers provide that better than any other profession that I have seen and I'm proud to call myself for 50 years now a professional social worker. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that I think is really important for listeners to understand, how do the social workers being the only connecting link between the um, patient and their families, what do the social workers say after they've sat with the loved one and the doctor's already given um, the diagnosis that they're, they're terminal and they're on a respirator? What does a social worker say to the family coming out of that room? Can you share that with our listeners? Yes. So, so what I have done and what um, a former student of mine at North Shore Child who I had kept in touch with over the years and who worked during this COVID-19 as a supervisor at St. Charles Hospital and led a team, what you say to the family is, I was with your loved one when they passed on or died. I held his or her hand and they died in peace and with dignity. And then you say to the family, here's my name and number. I am not forgetting about you. I know about resources, about, you know, now you can't do a meet in person, but many organizations, and I look forward to either now or later to giving uh, your listeners uh, some of the names of the different organizations on Long Island and nationally that could be of help to bereaved people and professionals. So um, an organization such as COPE, uh, and, and the um, people could go to COPE, C-O-P-E, foundation.org. And I, I facilitated a group for COPE for parents that lost children at any age, any means for seven years. And so what they're doing now is they're doing groups on Zoom. So they're doing support groups on Zoom and people are meeting virtually. And so you offer to people these are some books that may help you in dealing with your grief. These are some support groups. Here's the name of a social worker or a therapist or an agency who specializes in grief. Uh, and to be able to give them resources so when they're ready, they don't have to feel they got to deal with their grief alone. You, you can't necessarily control uh, how a person dies or when they die, but what you can do is you don't have to walk the path of grief alone. And again, I think professional social workers understand this better than any of the other uh, professions and has the skills to be able to, in a compassionate way, to assist people who are now having to deal with the death of a loved one. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you, you mentioned the uh, organization COPE. Uh, I know that's an acronym. Is that the same COPE that uh, Dr. Amy Olshiver is uh, involved yes, with? Yes, yes. She was involved, and then she uh, moved on. Uh, uh, she's doing private practice, and someone else, uh, uh, you know, I don't have the name right here before me, but someone else, another social worker, became the clinical director. Co and all the, all the services at COPE are free. Mm -hmm. There is no charge for the services. And that's another thing. It's important for people to know because uh, people will say, 
you know, uh, Mr. Paley, Ed, I don't have uh, uh, coverage for mental health. I don't have uh, the resources. And so it's the job of any social worker to make sure they know about organizations that provide sliding scale fee or pro bono services. And another organization, and I was privileged to work uh, at North Shore Child and Family Guidance Center for 11 and a half years. North Shore Child and Family Guidance Center, well, and they have three offices, the main one is in Roslyn, will not turn anyone away because of inability to pay. And when people in crisis, they try to see the person within 24 to 48 hours. They don't create a waiting list and say, well, we can't see you for a month. I recently had a uh, patient, a client, who told me that she called her primary care physician and was told, we don't have an appointment for you to mid-October. And I think that's an absurdity. And I suggested that she call back and insist on speaking to the head nurse or the office manager and say, I can't wait to mid-October. I need to be seen as soon as possible. Yes, yes. And one of the things that you mentioned that's a, a very, very important for social workers is that social workers have a bevy of resources at their fingertips. We're skilled and trained in helping people, but also one of the things that makes social workers unique is that we know how to connect people with resources, and that even goes for the doctors and the nurses. So talk a little bit about how social workers, especially in the hospital and medical social workers, help doctors and nurses and other hospital staff deal with the death of patients and their stress. Mm -hmm. Well, especially at this time, what my former uh, intern and uh, colleague Nancy did was at St. Charles, she and the other social workers made available their office where the doctors and nurses who were overwhelmed, who were sweating under those uh, uh, suits and, and with the mask, they were able to come to the room and they were able to know that the social workers who in terms understood them and they would speak to them. They, they created um, a uh, area where social, where people could come and speak confidentiality and in private if needed about how they felt overwhelmed. I mean, doctors and nurses were forced to choose during the crisis until there were enough ventilators. They had to choose. Do we give the ventilator to the 72 year old man or do we give it to the 40-year-old uh, uh, young man or young woman? And, and for doctors to have to do that uh, was, uh, uh, you know, wrenching for them to make that kind of decision that they didn't have enough supplies. And so doctors and nurses, social workers provided support, emotional support, because these doctors and nurses were so overloaded that they were at risk and are at risk for what was going during, you know, the Vietnam War PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. So by the social workers offering uh, this service, their office, and then what, what um, Nancy and other social workers did at St. Charles and other places, they created support groups for the doctors and nurses to be able to call in. Uh, I know that Governor Cuomo created a hotline and asked for uh, social workers and other mental health professionals to call in and register if they were interested. And then, you know, they were a referral source so that no one should feel that they got to deal with this COVID-19 alone, that whether you're a doctor, a nurse, uh, a radiation therapist, the, per the dietary person, 
people need to know, professionals that work in hospitals and nursing homes need to know that they're not alone in dealing with and that social workers have always been on the front line in helping people, both the patients and their fellow professionals with the support that they need. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. One of the other things that social workers are very uniquely uh, skilled to do is help people understand and work through the five stages of, of grief. So can you kind of enlighten our listeners a little bit about that, if you would, sir? Right. Well, the five stages were uh, coined by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yes. And I had the privilege to meet Dr. Ross when I presented a work at a workshop, a conference in Texas. And, and Dr. I. Ross, because I always felt, you know, she put in her books, You Resolve Death. And I feel very strongly, both personally and professionally, and she uh, did agree with me. You don't resolve death. What, what you do is you learn how to reconcile the death of a loved one. If it was a good relationship, there'll always be an opening in the heart uh, that you learn how to cope and you learn how to deal with the grief so that it doesn't that you don't get stuck and it doesn't lead to complicated uh, grief. And, and by complicated, I mean that if people don't, in their own case, deal with grief either through support groups, for what I call bibliotherapy. There are excellent bereavement books. Uh, uh, both libraries and Barnes and & Noble and Amazon has excellent books that have been written by both professionals and people that have been through the experience, some of whom are professionals. And what they do is, they, or people could seek out individual therapy with people like me who have invested a lot of time in becoming an expert on grief and, and loss. And uh, the five stages, you know, people begin with bargaining. Uh, and it's usually in, when their loved ones, uh, Kubler-Ross called it anticipatory mourning. So you have your loved one and they're in a hospital and they're given a stage four diagnosis of cancer. Now, the only one who knows when that person is going to die is the good Lord. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, but you could begin both as the patient and the family begin to discuss what are your wishes? Do you wish to be created? You know, if it hasn't been discussed before, do you wish to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? What kind of funeral do you want? Uh, who do you want to maybe give you a eulogy to speak about the, the uh, person that you were? And that's anticipatory mourning that you can do, you know, with people that have a serious diagnosis and that probably are, are going, uh, to die. And, and that's why hospice is so important mm-hmm. because with hospice, families can stay at the facility. They provide love and support and, and no one again dies in pain because the doctors are skilled and the nurses. So then after bargaining, you uh, go into, um, and the person dies, you go into depression, you go into anger. And, uh, finally, uh, the, the uh, last stage is acceptance. So it's possible for people to uh, be in all five stages, uh, uh, believe it or not, at the same time, they could be depressed, they could be angry, but there are some people that are able to go right to acceptance. And by that, I mean their loved one, their child or, or their, their, their um, parents or their spouse or some other family member, they went through such suffering that when they die, 
It's almost a release that release that they're no longer in pain. And depending on what people believe, if they believe that there's an afterlife, if they believe there's a heaven, they feel that at least my husband, my, my child is no longer in pain and they can go to acceptance or because of the age. I just had someone tell me today that their, their father died. Their father was 96 years of age. It's never easy when a loved one dies, especially when you lose, you know, let's say your, your mother is already dead and then the father dies. Well, you no longer have a parent. And so you have to come to grips that you don't have a mother or father that you can go to. So 96 is a pretty long life, but people still have to go to grief. And sometimes those people could go right to acceptance. So what Kubla Ross in her later books was able to clarify and speak about that you don't resolve and able to speak about um, uh, uh, that people can be in all five stages or they can go right to acceptance and and so on. It's when people get stuck in, let's say, the depression part where they don't go out, they, they, they quit their job, they can't sleep, they can't eat, they, they stop socializing, they don't return, they don't allow family members and friends to reach out to them and provide support, that those people are more at risk. And, and you see this with parents especially. Look, Silas, every death is a tragedy, but the death of a child is, I know you're a parent and I'm a uh, parent, I am uh, cannot imagine uh, what I would do if God forbid my son dies before me. So it's important to provide support for bereaved people, uh, whether they be widows, whether they have lost a child, and also people that um, are. Um, I've been very involved since 1988 with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I'm part of the, Coali- the Long Island Coalition on suicide prevention. We put on a conference every year, and this year it's going to be a virtual conference. And suicide is also, uh, is it people are at risk for complicated grief because even though it's 2020, there are still people who, who, who ostracize and is a stigma if they, uh, uh, if their loved one takes their life, that there are people that think they caused it, the family members caused it, and they reject them. They don't reach out to them. And it wasn't so long ago where if you were an Orthodox or a Cidic Jew and you lost a loved one to suicide, that there were some uh, uh, devout rabbis and priests also, they would not bury your loved one who took their life. Hi, this is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. I'm the host of the Kelson on the Air social work podcast, heard and hosted right here on Anchor FM, and I love it. Try it and you'll love it too. And here's why. First, you get an RSS feed, which is absolutely critical for distribution of your podcast. Your show will be distributed and heard on seven additional podcast platforms besides Anchor. Platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and much, much more. And get this, they even offer analytics so that you can see how well your podcast is doing. And as if that weren't enough, they also give you a breakdown of what each chart or graph means. In addition to that, when you host your podcast on Anchor, you get international exposure. That's right. Your podcast is heard in different countries around the globe. And just so you know that they're really in your corner, they provide you with info about sponsorship opportunities as well. 
So for secure services for your podcast, make sure to use your anchor podcasting services. When we look at that, you know, we, we got to kind of go back to, you know, the whole concept of what we were talking about. We talked about the five stages. And one of the things that, that stuck out to me was they came up with a an acronym, DABDA, and that represented the five stages. And that, that D in the first stage, we used to say would be denial because it's hard for someone to accept that either A, their loved one is dying. It's hard for sometimes the person to accept that they're dying. And then like you said, then the anger and then the bargaining and the depression and then the acceptance. Now, when we talk about being able to accept, it it has to be a lot more difficult when the family member can't get to the loved one to hold their hand, to look in their eyes, to stroke their uh, their brow, you know, to give them a drink of water. So that that must be a lot more uh, challenging. Now, is that where the social worker shows some additional skills? So how does they make that connection being the only person between the loved one and the dying person, because they're sitting in the hospital. And as you said, they're holding their dying person's hand. They maybe only have three or four more days left. Then they leave and then they have to go out and talk to the family member. What special skills do they use to keep those two living entities feeling like that they're still part of each other? Well, what the social workers did was they reached out to the family members on a daily basis and sometimes more than once a day. They, they took the time. Some of these social workers told me, and doctors and nurses also, and respiratory therapists, they, you know, uh, a lot of the hospitals, it was very nice when uh, restaurants donated food yes. and pizza parlors donated. But my, my nephew's wife is a nurse in New Jersey. And I asked her, she was on the front line with COVID-19. And I said, did you find the time to eat some of the food that was donated? And she said to me that it was very difficult because uh, during this crisis, they had so many patients in the hospital that they went from one patient to another. And they sometimes didn't even take the time to, to, to drink water. And, and, and so you had people who the mask was, uh, you know, their faces to be all mocked up and they were dehydrated. So, so what the social worker did was they called the family members more than once a day. They Even when they were put on a ventilator, they, they, they uh, were there. They went on the iPad or, the, or their phone and they called the computer and they called the family members so that they can see their loved one. Think about it. Prior to COVID-19, you were able to go and sit with your loved one and even stay over in the hospital yes. or the nursing home. Yes. With COVID-19, people, some people were taken out of the home to the hospital and, and the family member were hoping they're going to be allowed to visit. And then they get to the hospital. And many people told this to me, they get to the hospital and they're told by security. And again, these were well-meaning people. The hospitals had no choice because they were overloaded. Sorry, you can't come and visit your husband. You can't come and visit your wife because we are overloaded and our first priority needs to be in terms of patients. So it's not that we don't are being heartless. So the social worker 
was the one who made that even if they had to give up their uh, break time mm. or their meal time, they were there. And so then the person dies. And what the social worker did is they called the loved ones because it wasn't like in the old days where the family members were in the waiting room mm -hmm. or the family members would come to the hospital uh, and collect the clothes and stuff. They reached out to the family and said, I can arrange to meet with you in terms in my office. You keep your six feet. You have on your mask. I will have on my mask and personal protection. I will or I will fax you or email you or send you a list of different organizations that can be of help to you. Uh, the Mental Health Association of Nassau County, uh, the, the uh, uh, Association uh, for Mental Health and Wellness in Suffolk County. Mm -hmm. These are all very important organizations. And also, you know, as I said, I'm involved in suicide prevention. Yes. The Long Island Crisis Center in Nassau, which is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365 operation response in Suffolk County, the yes. same. What, what people were seeing at these organizations, and they have trained volunteers who undergo 250 hours of training, and they're always under the supervision of a professional social worker. What they were seeing, an increase in calls of people anxious, people depressed. Uh, I saw recently on the news that in the last two months, the uh, rate of suicide or people thinking about suicide among people ages 18 to 34 increased because people are afraid, people that are losing their jobs, yes. the, 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 uh, people that are deprived of food. So social workers, again, know and learn about resource. I have always told anyone I've ever trained, don't call yourself a professional social worker unless you know about resources that exists for the people you're trying to help. And never say, unless you're sure, that there are no resources for what you, your problem is. That, that's a I, great point, because uh, yeah. the whole key that makes a social worker, in my opinion, unique is that there's always a resource that we can find. Uh, and and there, there was an old saying that the, the sign of an intelligent person is not the person who has all the answers. It's the person who can find the answers. So we can apply that to social workers. The sign of an effective social worker is not someone who knows about all the resources, but someone who knows where to locate and find those resources. And also, when we talk about resources, want to make sure we you know let people know and listening that NASW is another great resource yes, that can provide yes. a wealth of uh, connected services to people in need, especially people dealing with grief and suffering and the loss of a loved one. Now, you've been doing this for a long time and, and you're considered an expert uh, in the field and your years of helping people uh, to get through grief. You um, have the insight of years of experience, but you also have the compassion of those years of experience. Why are social workers uh, so able to express and show that compassion in those very trying moments? You know, Silas, if you think about it, social workers are certainly better compensated than in the past. And there are some social workers, such as school social workers, that can do very well. I think people that make the decision 
to go into social work school, to become a professional social worker, whether it be a school social worker, a medical social worker, a hospice social worker, a psychiatric social are very special people. We go into it because we bring compassion with us. You know, I uh, very clear on my boundaries. But when I have sat with parents, either individually or with parents in doing a parent group, or I sat with a father a number of years ago that I saw privately, his son took his life with a shotgun. And this father, at the end of each session, because we connected also as fathers, we hugged each other. Silas, I'm very clear on my boundaries. But for me not to offer this man a hug what would have that said about me as a human being and especially me as a professional social worker? So I, when I've worked with, with uh, parents, I have shed a tear during a session. Does that make me that I don't know my boundaries? Does that make me heartless? No, what it, uh, what it makes me is that I have a heart. And see, I uh, think that one of the mistakes that social work schools have made in the past when they speak about uh, certain uh, boundaries. I'll just give you a quick example. In my first year of placement, I was in Lenox Hill Hospital. And in my process recording, I put that a, a woman I was working with that was dying reached out for my hand and held my hand. I had a supervisor, although she had an MSW, I don't think she was very compassionate. So she said to me, um, you know, Ed, that wasn't professional. You crossed the boundaries by letting her hold your hand. Now, I came to school, Silas, with eight years experience at Bronx Lebanon Hospital in the South Bronx. I knew that what I did was professional and it was compassionate. And I think that the day we forget about being compassionate is really the day that we need to look at. Are we burnt out? Should we leave social work? I have always had compassion for people and for my clients, patients. I started out in this field working with mostly elderly people in the South Bronx. And even back in the 70s, Silas, there wasn't enough food for people. People were embarrassed to get food stamps. They said, Mr. Paley, I don't need welfare. I said, Mrs. B., this isn't welfare. I said, you earned this. I said, let me help you so that you have food in your house, that you don't have to be food deprived. And eventually they saw that I cared about them and that I wanted to help them. And I think that what comes through to people, hopefully, is that we are compassionate. You know, it isn't confession when you help, when we help our clients, patients, but it comes close to it. You or I or other people that are social workers may be the only person that that individual, a child, adult, a family, a parent, a group, shares feelings with that they have shared with no one. You know, when I, I use laughter in therapy, mm -hmm. I use it as a therapeutic tool. I never laugh at any of my people that have allowed me to help them. And there's an old expression that I know you know, Silas. There but for the grace of God go I. I always tell anyone I ever trained, know what it's like to sit in the chair of a client or patient. I encourage people to go to therapy, to have a therapeutic experience, to know the use of self. And I think that I always look for people that I have trained 
do they, besides the uh, being able to integrate theory and practice, are they compassionate? Because if you don't have compassion, I don't know how you can be a good social worker, Silas. I agree. I agree. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I see that the role of social workers during this COVID-19 pandemic has been elevated because everybody at some point is turning to the social worker. I've talked to some of our colleagues and I've heard about the doc, like you said, the doctors and the nurses, when they've been exasperated and they, they, they can't take any more, they go to the social work office. The family members who may be close to losing a loved one, they talk to the social worker. And and I see that you, you even have mentioned that there's a role that social workers have played at the funeral homes. So um, talk a little bit about that because we're in every aspect and people don't realize it because one of my other colleagues said, you know, we just go about quietly and unassumingly doing what we do and nobody actually realizes what it is that we do until then they all of a sudden need us. How, what kind of role has social workers played at funeral homes? Well, I'll give you an example of this COVID-19. A social worker I know that does a lot of bereavement work got a call from the funeral director and said, I'm overwhelmed. I have so many people that I've been asked to bury. I would like you to come and if you could bring one or two of your colleagues. So we'll give you an office so that the families can come to you and, and can ask you questions and so on. And with this social worker who thinks outside the box, said to the funeral director, since it was limited to five to ten people inside, they said, what about putting the casket outside, you know, in your parking lot and having family member and friends, this way it can be more than five or ten, drive by, drive by. Yes. Open, their, open their window, and touch the casket. Wow. Say something to the casket and drive on. So what happened in this one funeral, 60 cars, Silas, drove by, and it was at the suggestion of a professional social worker. Look at that. Um, social work, what I uh, used to do, uh, there was a funeral home in Queens, and I had an excellent relationship with the funeral director. And uh, what he did uh, around the, uh, um, sometime in December, he had me come in and we did a program on how to cope with the holidays. And I brought some information to give out to the people. And what he did was he invited families and members uh, uh, back that he and his staff had buried their loved ones the previous year. He invited them in. He had a priest say a few words. He had a rabbi and, and, and a, a Muslim uh, uh, a priest say a few words. And then what I spoke about is how to get through the holidays without your loved one, how to remember them, how to maybe have an empty chair or candle to speak about them, have a picture at the table so that you and the other family members will never forget what this loved one stood for. And then they provided a Christmas tree and people were able to bring mementos with their family member's name or bring pictures. I brought a picture each year of my father, and I'm Jewish, and I had them put it up on the tree. And at the end of the holidays, they either mailed it back to the family members or you came to the funeral home to pick it up. It's very important that people realize 
They don't have to walk this path of grief alone, Mm -hmm. that there are social workers and people that really want to help them, that really care. So it's very important to establish relationships with funeral homes to understand, you know, that's the other thing about social workers. I mentioned systems earlier. We social workers understand about systems, internal, uh, external systems, and how to bring the different systems. Collaboration. I think social workers, more than any other profession, if they're trained right, we understand about collaboration with other professionals, with other people outside our profession, whether it be in the hospital, doctors, nurses, and other people, whether it be in the schools, the teachers, the guidance counselors, uh, uh, and so on. Social workers are very, very important. I think, Silas, that that uh, long after uh, this COVID-19, we find the vaccine and it may end we are going to be needed yes. more than ever because yes. we're, we're going to see uh, the people in the healthcare field. Uh, we're going to see, uh, they're, they're going to be experiencing some of them PTSD. Yes. We're going to, we're going to, the families that are overwhelmed uh, with coping with this people that are losing their jobs. How do they cope? How do you help for them to be retrained? And I've been telling people don't watch the news. And especially if you have children or grandchildren, do not expose your children or grandchildren to this news or make the assumption that they're not listening or watching. I had uh, someone recently say to me, "Uh, Ed, I need your help. I said, do your parents watch the news? He says, yes. I said, is your son there when they watch the news? He said, yes. I said, the solution is very simple. Your, Your parents have a TV in their room? He said, yes. I said, ask your parents to no longer watch the news in front of your son and daughter. And that's why your son isn't sleeping because your son is hearing. Imagine how difficult it is for us adults that every day it went off to, I think this point, I forget how many people that have died in the United States, how many people around the world that have died or been infected with the COVID-19. This is overwhelming for us adults. Imagine Silas, how this is for children and grandchildren. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, uh, one last thing is uh, there was a story that I believe you wanted to share about a social worker yes. who saved the life of a 90-year-old man. Tell our listeners a little bit about that as we yeah, get ready to bring this to a yeah, close. Yeah, thank you, Silas. So I commend the New York Times uh, a few months ago on page one. They told the story of a male social worker who also was in the military. He was. He lived in another state. He was assigned to Jacoby Hospital as part of his military, and he had a master's in social work. So this man connected with a 90-year-old white patient. This was a black social worker connected with a 90-year-old white Jewish man at Jacoby Hospital. For those of you outside of New York, Jacoby is part of the public health system. It's a hospital in the Bronx. And it's a good hospital. And so he got to know this 90-year-old man. So this 90-year-old man's wife was hospitalized with the COBRA also. They were both there for the COVID-19. She wound up dying. He said, I don't want to. They were married 62 years. He said, I don't want to live anymore. No one could get him to eat. They would bring him food. I don't want. I want to die. 
He had children and grandchildren who over the the uh, iPad would beg him, Poppy, Grandpa, Dad, we love you. We need you. He says, no, I want to die. This social worker spent time with him, and he said with tears in his eyes, Mr. Cohn, I will feel very bad if you die. I've gotten to know you. I salute you, sir. I am asking you. Your family needs you. I will help you to grieve the deaths of your life. I will be here for you, sir. I am begging you to start eating and to to go on living because God is determined that your time is not up. And the man said, give me some food. This man is alive because of this MSW social worker who connected with him on two levels, Silas. He connected with him by showing compassion and he connected with him by having the training of an MSW and the fact that he was a mili- one military man to another. I thought that story, what I did on Facebook, and NASW did it also, Silas, because NASW put up some great stuff about social workers yes. during, this, during the crisis. And, and I went ahead and I shared that story with everyone on Facebook because I want people to know that, you know, listen, Anyone who were on the front line, whether it be the, the, the worker in the supermarket, whether it be the doctor, the nurse, the respiratory, you know, and so on. Social workers, frontline responders, and are very well trained to show the compassion, the training, and have the resources to help people that are dying and people that are still living to cope with this COVID-19 pandemic. I agree 100%, and I think that's a great way to end it, and we're going to end it right there on that note. Nothing else needs to be said. Uh, Mr. Paley, you've been a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for all your inspiring comments, and we're going to wrap this up. Uh, Once again, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to a special Kelson on the Air uh, social work podcast entitled Social Workers Confronting COVID-19 with Compassion, courage and character and our special guest has been today mr edward paley lcsw and expert in the field of grief and loss thank you so much mr paley for being here on the show with us silas thank you and thank you for all you're doing and i appreciate you i wish you and your family well and god bless you thank you this is silas your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show you've been listening to the kelson on the air social work podcast This and all other programs are available on the Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Anchor podcast platforms. Go to any search engine and type in Kelson on the Air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelson Communications production.